You're listening to the Rural Advancement Podcast. Rural Advancement provides resources to empower, equip, and encourage rural pastors and churches. Join our community by visiting us at ruraladvancement.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Rural Advancement. This is the podcast that is by rural leaders and for rural leaders. It is our goal every single week, week in and week out, to bring you content that is not just spoken to the rural church, but is spoken by people who get it, people who have lived, ministered, and worked for God in small, out-of-the-way places. Uh, We want you to know that if you're a pastor, whether it's bivocational or paid or volunteer, or if you're a deacon or a Sunday school teacher, that you are seen, you are valued, and we want you to be equipped. And so uh, I'm your host, Joe Epley, and today we have the privilege to interview um, Pastor Doug Clay, who serves as the superintendent of the Assemblies of God. And uh, I'm excited to hear his perspective because I know that uh, when I've had a chance to hear him speak, um, he's talked a lot about his own, uh, how the rural church is factored into his own upbringing. And also his seat as the kind of leader of our fellowship uh, has given him quite a perspective on on different issues. And so I, I'm just pumped uh, for that unique take on what rural is and, and what it could be. And so, first of all, I just want to say, Pastor Doug, how are you, sir? Hey, thanks, Pastor Joe. And uh Congratulations on your new role, and uh, I think your uh, personal schedule is going to pick up quite a bit here in the coming weeks. <laughs> but uh, it, it, you know, I want to just affirm you, uh, your investment in the next generation through youth ministries, kid men ministries is so huge. So, Joe, thanks for saying yes. And uh, yeah, so um, I uh, I have a deep, deep, deep. Uh, appreciation for rural churches. I'm the product of that. I uh, born and raised in that. The best part of my spiritual formation, and I use that very calculated, came at Bethany Assembly of God, Adrian, Michigan, an agricultural community in Southeast Michigan, and uh, really formed a lot of not just my views of God and, and, and His purpose of my life, but a real view of ministry. And I know we'll get into that later, but Boy, thank you, and it's it's with it's not obligatory, it's not trendy, and I don't have to. Uh, okay, well, I checked that one off to talk with a lot of affection about rural churches because I'm a product of that. Right, and uh, give us just a glimpse into you know maybe highlight one of the ways in which uh, the rural church kind of was a part of your story growing up. What what is it that really you know stood out to you at different points in your life? I would say the most significant thing is that uh, I, I was a preacher's kid, Adrian, Michigan. Mom and dad went there, and uh, 21 years after my dad initiated, built that church, he died suddenly of a massive heart attack. He was only 40. My mom was 39, uh, but my mom stayed on as the minister of music in the next season of ministry. So, uh, in some degree, I was raised by the church long before that title. Uh, apostolic fathers was popular in certain cultures, charismatic cultures. I experienced spiritual dads. I had Royal Ranger commanders help me build my Pinewood Derby car and youth sponsors that would take me on canoe trips and things like that. So, so my, my, the best part of my spiritual formation years, the most critical part took place in the context of, of, of a rural setting. Now, one of the urban myths is that just because you're in a rural setting doesn't necessarily mean your church is small. You sure. know, uh, Bethany was church over 500, but the community was 10,000 or less. Right. Uh, it really became sort of a county 
church. Adrian was the county seat of Lenawee County. And so um, I had the privilege of being a part of um, Teen Talent, which is now Fine Arts Festival, the Bible, all of that stuff. So I'm a product. I'm a product of Kids Crusade, Vacation Bible School, that whole stuff that rural churches uh, really excel in. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so I want to uh, kind of zoom out now because obviously, you know, we've we've had a chance just in hearing your story to talk about how important the Royal Church was to you. But now let's zoom out to this uh, level of, of the Assemblies of God Fellowship a little bit um, because you to sit in a seat that is very aware of different demographics and trends of what's happening and, and, and congregations and how they're all, you know, kind of flowing together. And so let's talk about your thoughts on the importance of, of rural ministry and just the smaller church in general. Like, like what you what could you say you know to that pastor who's working in a small place? Like what do you see from your vantage point? I suppose. Yeah, I, I think I first of all want to sort of reframe some of our language. Just because small is used in describing number does not mean it's less effective or has any less influence. So I like to talk about churches of influence rather than oh, churches of size that whether you're rural or metropolitan, you can become a church of influence. That, mm. And, and I, I experienced that. You know, to answer your question, Joe, I think there's a couple of things. First of all, uh, the reality of population demands that we give consideration to rural, uh, right? 60% of America is in rural. About one out of every five Americans live in a rural community. When I think of our own Assemblies of God census, of Assemblies of God attenders are in rural communities. And and I think, I want to make sure we're on the same page, rural is 10,000 or less. Typically, yep, yep. That's that's a good definition. Yep. our standard. So so I I, I first of all say that the population should drive our missiological action. If if that population center resides there, then we should give attention to it. I, I also think, I wrote down some things in preparation for our conversation, but you know, rural areas from the seat that I said it, they have some stronger relational networks than metropolitan centers. Even though you might live in a high rise condo apartment, boy, doors are shut a lot. And, and yeah, so, yeah. however, in, in rural communities, front doors open, the porch is there. You, you know, so I, I've watched that there is already built in in the ethos of uh, rural areas, koinonia, and uh, strong relational commitment. I think the other perhaps urban myth or lack of understanding is that uh, rural areas are poor areas. (laughs) That's just not true. There's wealth in rural areas. There's wealth in, uh, in, in, in some farms and property and oil and Trinity Bible College that sits in a rural setting may be our only university in the Assemblies of God that's debt-free. And uh, they have some very affluential individuals that back that school. So, So that's an urban myth that rural is necessarily poor or of a poverty mindset. And, and I think one other thought that hits me, there does seem to be a commitment closer to biblical values than trendy values in a rural setting versus in a metropolitan setting. Mm-hmm. Now, I, again, I'm not trying to 
stereotype inappropriately metropolitan oh, yeah, areas yeah. as well. But but because of that strong relational base, because institutions like churches, schools, hospitals, police and fire collaborate more, I think there's already built in some some values that that our kingdom values are really complementary of or become the soil to which uh, that rule uh, can really resonate with. So uh, you asked that question, why? Population demands it. But then I also think there's chemistry in some of the demographics itself that say, why wouldn't we want to give our sure, attention sure. Uh, to this uh, to this geographical area of our country? Awesome. Yeah. And I love those thoughts. You know, I, I definitely, uh, definitely echo what you said, even as you were, you were talking, I was thinking of my own life and ministry, you know, because uh, I was out of town for a, a wedding and uh, a tornado hit our small town in Montana, which is really weird for our small towns in Montana. And uh, I got a phone call from a parishioner after they had already been in my house, cleaned up some stuff, put the plywood over the window, you know, like, taking care of things, checked the property, you know, they'd already done all that before they even called me to let me know that this happened. You know, it was just such a, such right. a sign of that relational community. Well, yeah. Hey, I want to uh, uh, switch gears and we'll, we'll dive into some leadership conversations because obviously um, as we get to these next maybe topics, there's just is a huge need in rural. And one of the things that, that we notice, you know, it's, it's something that we've talked about around the Montana district being predominantly rural, but uh, it seems difficult at some days to to get pastors where they need to be and to find pastors for certain places. But it seems even more difficult to find pastors for rural places. You know, it seems like there's this trickle down effect. At least that's you know that's sometimes what we what we see on the on this side of it. And so, how do we develop leaders for rural churches? I mean, maybe speak to that. You know, is it is it are we are we having significant sources to bring in from the outside? Are, are we raising them up? Like, uh, what what could you say to that? You know. Yeah, it's a great thought, Joe. I think, first of all, because we no longer see it as the stepchild to the mission field, and it's a viable mission field, I believe you're going to see a, a heightened awareness of that. Mm. Secondly, I think you have had some uh, voices of influence, some some significant pastors that have really given their attention to that. Uh, the Jared Strongs, the Brian Jarrett's, the, uh, the 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 perhaps the metropolitan area churches that say, "Look, we want to we want to give our resource and energy to that." I, I think again, I referenced it early, but Trinity Trinity is a school that unapologetically focuses on training for the rural. So I think it's more than just trendy right now. I really do believe it's a, it's a God-inspired catalyst that's turning the hearts of, of leadership to the 60% of our population. Now, again, it doesn't always have coffee bars, juice bars, Planet Fitnesses, some of the amenities that sure. perhaps the metropolitan, but the need, wow, incredible. So from the 30,000-foot seat that I sit in watching this, I am grateful. I'm grateful for you, Joe. I'm grateful for Jared Straw. I'm grateful for voices that are really continuing to articulate the need and, and the sure. value, the value. So I, I think we have to overcome uh, urban myths, overcome false stereotypes. And then I think as people just taste, experience, and see. 
I think one of the other things, oftentimes in a rural, you talk about you really can pastor a community. Metropolitan yeah. area, you might have a church within two miles. And so your church is really built on your genre of style of worship. You get into a rural area, you truly can become a regional church. You truly can become the pastor of that county. So in terms of significance, uh, it's as equally significant, not greater in significant to that end. But there's a mindset. I think you have to just like we um, exegete culture when we go to a uh, uh, an international area, so too it's important to exegete the culture of rural communities. And not all rural communities are the same. That's and, true. That's uh, true. I, I think that requires sort of missiological mindset that how am I going to interpret? Not all rural communities wear cowboy boots and Wrangler jeans. And I think... So so I think that becomes really important, but that's also the motivation, because as you exegete that culture, you're going to find some people, wow, I have a burden for that. Can I use this expression? People group. I know they're not yeah, an unreached yeah, people, but that people group. And so I'm excited. I'm excited personally that we we look to that mission field with as much passion as we do the metropolitan and urban centers. Absolutely. And I, I would hope that any pastor listening would be encouraged by that, that, that there are voices. And a lot of them we've had on this podcast, you know, we've had uh, Jared Strong on this podcast. We've talked to, you know, people like Rich Greenwald with the Rural American Ministry Network. And we've talked to, uh, oh gosh, D uh, Steve Donaldson with uh, Rural Compassion. I mean, there are groups out there who are not, it's like you said, Pastor Doug, not just, not just trending rural but are, are truly advocating. And so I would hope that any pastor would be encouraged that uh, we can start championing our own context. We can start viewing it as valuable. And uh, and I think we're going to attract leaders out of our own churches as well as out of uh, kind of these sources. So uh, let's let's switch gears here. This is one of my favorite conversations, and it's something I have on, on just a popular level with different pastors and different things. Uh, but But in general... Uh, obviously church planting is is huge, right? I mean, that's our goal. We're pushing. We want to plant more churches. And yet uh, alongside church planting, it's a cousin or a brother, whatever you want to call it, but there's the area of revitalizing churches, right? Because one of the things that uh, may be a stereotype, but is is actually kind of a relatively true stereotype of rural churches, is that there's a lot of uh, of the graying of populations, of the aging of a congregation. And so let's talk for just a little bit about what are some effective ways to kind of revitalize rural churches? Is it, and I'm going to use this word very carefully, uh, you know, because there are people out there who would argue, is it worth it to try and revitalize something? Is it, or, or are we just going to try and replant, you know, and, and it's all these different things. And so maybe speak to that because there's, you know, I, I do, I do happen to think to show my own bias that there's some importance there, but uh, I want to hear your perspective on it. Well, I think there's, there's huge importance there. I don't think you can create, well, is this the little brother or the second cousin? I think you have to sure. identify it as the twin, as mm. the twin. And I think in our tribe, church planting, as well as church revitalization, have to be spoken, have to be spoken with equal passion. And I say that because uh, as a 108-year-old fellowship, 108-year-old <laughs> fellowship, we have about 50% of our constituency that is in what I would call a plateaued or declining church. Mm. Now, you can either look at that stat and go, wow, that's that's terrible, that's horrible, that's yeah. or you could say, wait a minute, there's a large group of committed people 
that even though the church may be stagnant, they're still committed. So I'll tell you, most church planners would love to have a group of committed people to start with. So, so I am, I am as equally passionate about Acts 2 and CMN. And the reason why I love those two brands of planting and revitalization is because they're based on principles. The templates are not so rigid that sure. it can't be contextualized in various settings. We we teach to biblical principles. We teach to, uh, really, it fits the various genre styles. So if you're classical Pentecostal, Acts 2 principles can really fit there. If Absolutely. you're if you're real ethnic in your in your boy, CMN principles can can go there. So to your question, I think it would be a disservice to to the assemblies of God if we turned our head towards recalibration to say, ah, we're just gonna plant, we're just gonna plant. Oh, I hope we become a multiplying movement, but multiplying does take into consideration revitalization. I'll put it this way. I would love every revitalized church to have built into its its, its revitalization strategy, when are you going to be able to multiply? Mm-hmm. I would love every <clears throat> multiplied or planted church to have an understanding, what are the Acts 2 principles that when you're five years old, you can take yourself through yeah. so you never have to be recalibrated? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I think it does. And honestly, um, <clears throat> one of the things I love about our conversation is uh, when, when you get to speak again, uh, we like unique perspectives. And when you get to speak from yours, it, it really does add a lot of dignity to it. Because I think that uh, the that, that people tend to, um, I, and I, I don't think, uh, trust me, I don't think anyone's knocking down the door. You know, we don't have enough people doing either of these things. You know, we could always use more church planners and always use more revitalizers. But but I think it's just so important to notice that that you use that word twin because um, because I know the perception. I mean, there are there are communities that have been labeled difficult and churches that have been labeled, you know, stuck in the past. And and when you walk through it with a group of committed people, you know, there's just so much value there. And if someone's working in a revitalized context, sometimes the winds are slower. Sometimes it can take longer to change that DNA. And yet, uh, what I hear you saying is there's just immense value to that work. And so I would hope that any pastor listening uh, would sense that value and kind of sense the value of their own mission that they've been doing, you know, that God's called them to do. So 100%, 100%. You know, I think the other thing about um, rural churches, I, I I served as a district youth director. So I kind of was in youth ministry. You will probably see this, Joe, uh, when you step into your, your new role. But rural churches send more kids to camp send more kids to convention, send more kids to probably some of the highly spiritual life activity events that you do that. I don't say that with a value. I'm, I'm not putting that yeah. down to a, I'm just, I'm saying the reality, the reality of people that come to the events that you sponsor that have high spiritual activity of salvation, baptisms, uh, call into ministry are going to come from rural. And many of those rural bring the community people that are associated with the church to that event. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we've always joked, uh, you know, we have a Montana is a very wide state, obviously in our church camps all the way up in one corner. And so from my, even from my town in Baker, Montana, which is right next to North Dakota, it was uh 700 miles to, to get up to camp. I mean, it's wow. crazy. You know, I could cross, cross a lot of other States first, 
but we always used to joke that the east side, which is predominantly rural, you know, would bring uh, a lot of leaders, a lot of staff, a lot of committed, good, hardworking people. And I'm sure there were times jokingly where we'd pick one side or the other and poke fun. But but it, it wasn't meant to put anyone down, like you said. It's just to recognize right. that that there are a lot of valuable people in these places, and to completely overlook them, you know, yeah. would would be would be a crime. And so it's really neat that, right. that that's your perspective. That's something I've seen as well. That's awesome. So the last thing I kind of want to touch on here in our conversation today, there's kind of this idea of um, what it could look like to kind of develop succession plans in small churches. And and here's where I maybe want us to dive a little down and get practical, because one, it's already difficult to have good transitions in in any size of church, you know, and there might be uh, a larger church that has, you know, I, I've read several books where it's like, okay, you know, you bring in a pastor and you pay them and then over the course of a year or six months or three years, whatever your plan is, you know, you can raise that pastor up and eventually give them more, you know, responsibility. And that's a beautiful succession plan. Okay. But then you've got a church of 80 people, hundred mm-hmm. people, 150 people, 20 people, you know, and right. you are expected to say, how do we keep passing on a beautiful work of God, a beautiful church, a wonderful congregation of people um, without maybe some of the built-in systems that allow us to pay people well, that allow us to, you know, that would kind of make that difficult. And so maybe uh, speak towards, you know, how, how do we how do we keep good churches staffed well? Because nothing is sadder than when I have to hear about another rural church that goes, man, when pastor such and such was here was great. And then after that, we were without a pastor for a while and things fell apart, you know, and it's just the saddest thing. And so maybe speak to that a little bit. Yeah, thank you, Joe. And you've teed up something very, very important to me and very exciting for me. First of all, I don't think the generation ahead of us talked much about succession. You know, that was kind of held to the, their chest. They didn't, that was, that was between them and God. And, and sure. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It just, it wasn't a conversation. I also think we are morphing out of an understanding of this, that our calling is different from our assignment. Sure. We're called for life, but our assignment has a shelf life. Mm. And I think some people have overstayed their assignment and mortgaged the future of the church because they've created an emotional tie that church will live with plateaued or declining because they're emotionally tied into that. Mm. But again, I would go back to both statistics and uh, missional effectiveness. Statistics are demanding that we give our attention to aging out of pastors, not just in metropolitan settings, but in rural We have just recently launched the Legacy Transition Group. It's a ministry that we have funded. We've asked uh, Ron McManus to give oversight to it. Legacy Transition is basically to come alongside and help districts and churches with succession and transition. In Mm -hmm. other words, it's not just an interim pastor. Anybody can find somebody to go in there and just fill the pulpit. But how do you help that church set itself up for its preferred future? And it might interest you to know that we have taken these principles and then created a transition plan for a model church of under 200 and one under 100. Oh, wow. That's so exciting. Here's the long range goal. I would love for every district to have a certified legacy transition person. And most of these are persons who served in, in, in a pastor retired and they've got gas in their tank. They've got leadership yeah. capacity. Because when you talk about succession, you know, the different types of succession, 
You've got legacy succession where a long-term pastor uh, has been there and tries to hand it off. You've got catastrophe succession. There is a failure of moral. You've got some predetermined that goes to a, a biological relative, but maybe the church isn't ready for that. So sure. we identify the various types of transition and are saying, what can we do to get in on the front end to do two things? Honor the pastor that was in place, but then also say, hey, pastor in place, you want you want your work to go on without you. So how can a third objective person come in and help to steward that so that the work continues on and doesn't just shrivel up with you. Uh, I've heard, you probably know better than I do, but I have heard stats that there are almost like 1,500 rural church pastors that are in their 60s that potentially in the next five years could age out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I would. And I, I don't know the exact numbers either, but I but I do think like, yeah, that's, that's pretty on par. There's a lot of Older pastors, yep. So succession is not just for the large church. I think it's very much, I think it starts with being able to talk about it, not feeling unspiritual. And that I put yeah. that onus on the pastor. I, the pastor, you need to talk about what's it look like when you're not here and how's that. And then the board, but then outside, perhaps voices of expert that can come and say, hey, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? I talked with the church the other day that, was in transition and their daycare was draining them. It was draining oh, no. them financially, but they knew that that was a big part of the pastor's vision. They said, well, we don't want to shut the daycare down till the new pastor gets her. I'm saying, wait a minute. Why don't you make all the tough decisions before the new pastor yeah, gets there yeah. so that he's not sad. And they're, oh, okay. You know, just again, hadn't thought about that. So right. I think that's what this legacy transition group uh, can help both our districts and our churches as we train people to come in and do just what you said. How do we preserve that work? How do we not have to have the theme song to so many churches be those were the days, my friend, but hey, yeah, come and see 2.0, sure. what God's doing. So, Yeah. And, uh, you know, that that legacy transition group is uh, definitely intriguing to me. First time hearing about it, and I'm pretty excited. Uh, I would love to put something in the show notes. Is there a way that someone can access that kind of information? Has it been rolled out yet? Yep. LegacyTransitionGroup.com. LegacyTransitionGroup. They just had their first formal meeting with 30-some individuals who said, count me in to be a uh, a, a legacy transition. We've given a manual. We've given it's for me, it's going to be like CMN and Acts 2. This is going to be our brand for helping churches in transition. I love that. I love that. Awesome. I'm excited to look into that because I do. I, I think of, and I think when you do rural ministry right, you really do get that divine sense of how valuable a community of faith is. Not again, not to put down anybody else, you know, but it's. But, but I just, and even for myself, you know, I, I've ministered in rural for the last 10 years. And uh, and in taking the district youth director role with the Assemblies of God, I, I had to, I have to switch towns. And I have to go from from my lovely small town back to Billings, which is where I'm from, which is fine. But mm-hmm. but there's a bittersweetness to it because sure. my thoughts are still with, man, I know the work of God will continue, but how do we set it up for success? And, and you know, right. so I, I just want to say thank you once again, Pastor Doug, for being on the podcast today. My honor, and thanks for what you do. Thanks for, thanks for what I would call these kinds of life-giving 
conversations that uh, I think will serve us, serve our future well. And thanks. I, I just want to say thanks for being willing to talk about um, transition, to talk about the rural dynamics and not feel like that's, well, that's not as missional as, you know, right, right. inner city and uh, global type thing. So uh, I appreciate what you're doing. Absolutely. Well, I just want to say once again from all of us at Rural Advancement, thank you for tuning in today. Again, it is our goal every single week to uh, bring you content that is not just spoken by the or to the rural church, but is spoken by those who get it. And so uh, I'm glad you tuned in today. You can always find us on Apple Podcast or Spotify or our website, www.ruraladvancement.com. But in the most rural of fashions, the best way for this podcast to spread is by one minister looking at another minister saying, hey, you got to hear this. And so please um, spread it the best you can. I have been Joe Epley. He has been Pastor Doug Clay, and we will see you next week. Mm-hmm.